Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I am delighted to have a first-time guest, Dustin Ripito. Dustin is a go-to-market philosopher and special operator, according to our <laughs> mutual friend, Eric Steves. And we're going to be discussing some really hefty stuff today. We're going to be discussing something called meta skills. We're going to be looking at the problem of problem intimacy blindness and the importance of certain skills that you have to develop in order to thrive in the future. We're going to explore the future of the sales profession. And we're going to philosophize about it. There's little point having a philosopher and philosophizing yourself. So without any further ado, Dustin, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. So great to be on the show. Uh, we've had many conversations and uh, I wish we would have hit a report on many of those. <laughs> well, yeah, just learning so much from you. Would you mind giving me some two minutes on your history so that people can get a sense of where you've come from and how you became this philosopher. Actually, I'm actually relatively new to, you know, uh, tech sales and the tech go-to-market functions. Um, I uh, had a small business for 20 years. I sold after I had a kidney transplant. I mean, 2018, I had kidney failure twice. I had a stroke. I got my MBA, sold a business after 20 years, moved across state with a four-year-old, and then I most pivotally started into tech sales. And so, yeah, so busier trying to catch up to that productivity level ever since. So I've worked with several startups, including some hedge funds, and I've done a tad touch or significant amount of every GTM function in that at this point. Okay, let's start with the big hairy ass uh, question, which is, why is it that despite all the evidence and despite the commercial benefit of treating people humanely, we still insist on creating hell holes for people to work in. So a very light question to start, a little appetizer. Yeah. I thought we'd start light and then build from there. <laughs> Great. I think it's it comes down to a point of control. It comes down to wanting to manage people instead of lead people. And it comes down to the fact that if you scale out enough, you're just looking at numbers and not looking at the humans or how to help humans flourish in those things. If you come from a human perspective, if you come from your rep perspective and look up, your employee perspective, look up, like what can we get out of their way is a very valuable question I'm bound to ask you. Most, like what can I get out of your way at every level and let them thrive within the role? I think that's what's going to lead to loyalty as well. You know, everyone leaves, you know, Gallup will tell us what, that people leave because of bad managers. Well, maybe. <laughs> I think they, I don't know, I don't think managers are equipped well enough to change things, right? So. They need to be guided and helped as well. You know, we have this thing where we do, what do we do? Like, if you're really good at making widgets, what do we do? We promote you to the leader of a team of people making widgets. That's not the same skill set. What is it? Price is law. We get promoted to level of our uh, incompetence or something. Like that. So, the think, Peter principle. Yeah, Peter principle. Thank you. Absolutely. And price is law is another one of our favorites. Price, of course. Yeah. But Peter principle, that's right. And so, like, you would do. And we, and uh, so I think that's kind of what generates that. And then, you know, we also have kind of, unfortunately, some of the big players, I think, have made like, especially in the sales functions, like the SDR, BDR role is kind of an agoji, like a Spartan agoji, like whoever's strong enough to survive wins, you know, if not, we throw them to the wolves. We'll hire, you know, and and I think that's just like disgusting and weird and um, inhumane. It is. And it's also commercially massively inefficient. 
the the S and P five hundred study between twenty ten and twenty sixteen indicated highly engaged staff generate five hundred percent more profit per employee than average and poorly uh, engaged. One hundred and twenty percent higher daily production, uh, daily revenue per employee. Twenty percent higher daily production. Forty percent lower absenteeism, sickness, and turnover. Three hundred and sixteen percent compound share price growth annual year on year. Now, to my mind, if I were an investor, I would be very frustrated. But you made the point that the managers are not equipped. In the United Kingdom, there are 2.4 million accidental managers. That means 16.8 to 19.2 million employees are reporting to someone who has tapped on the shoulder and told Dustin, we've had to fire your idiot boss. Congratulations, you're now the idiot boss. Off you go. That to me smacks of a leadership deficiency and it's being driven by metrics that are damaging and significantly out of date. So let's start with that. If you were to start with a blank sheet of paper Mm -hmm. and you're able to design your ideal go-to-market organization, what would be the end game that you would work everyone working to have everyone working towards? And what would be the key two or three metrics that everybody would be tied to. Beautiful. Love that. First off, this would have to be bootstrap because I think uh, we're a little hamstrung in the community because a successful company looks a certain way to an investor. And so I think a lot of times these roles are created because other successful companies in the profile have that those roles. Right. Mm -hmm. But no, what I would see is highly tech enabled leadership, highly empowered human resources, had a people kind of uh, role and function. And then you have a group of specialists and the majority of things would come together as a, as an agile uh, function. So say there was a GTM campaign, like you have a new product or new feature launch among your specialists that you have, you would, you would build temporary teams that would aim at that uh, accomplishing that. So leaders would rise naturally within a limited scope and they wouldn't be permanent managers. They would just be the project lead. And you would lead it in that fashion and build that out and achieve that goal. And they go back to doing their specialists. So, like a, you know, you have like a highly enabled BDR function, uh, tech enabled BDR, where they're doing deep analysis, highly personalized, highly relevant, highly problem intimate work and diving into the problem and leading folks through. I also see a future here where we're getting to a one person GTM teams where I don't hand over. I'm not an SDR that hands over to an AE from marketing to SDR to AE to customer success. I think that we can enable through the tech we have currently and just put it together. Not all, not all instances, but I think for some firms, it may be a wise idea that you just have a representative that takes them from awareness to what I think is the most important metric is churn. Why do people stay? Why do they, why do they leave? I think that's the most important part of the customer and buyer journey is at one year, do they renew? They don't know if they don't renew or why they renew, you need to know why. That is the most important metric to my mind. One metric that I'm uh, encouraging my clients to build in is the third renewal. Because by then, it's not like you've made it through the filter and you accidentally got second year. If you made it through the third year, you've been doing something right. Because it's You've already had tough conversations that happened. Like you, you don't get stay, you don't get sneak under the radar, right? I I agree, but I think the first year renewal is most critical because it gives you action that you can take back to marketing immediately, and that will improve the sales conversions. That will also improve 
a product as well, right? And that's when you see it occurs. And then I agree a bit. Ultimately, I agree. It's like three year, you are an institution to them. You're a pillar of their tech stack or your solution is a pillar to their to their method, right? Well, I think there's a, a, a really important piece here, which is that as salespeople, we need to start thinking as our customer. And we've got to stop with this peddling a product and features and functionality. Because the reality is the sale is a symptom of all the behaviors and the communication that's happened beforehand. And the failure to map one's buyer's journey means that most of the time you are meeting the customer where you were hoping they would be as opposed to where they actually are or where they're going to be. So you're just creating interruption and friction and noise because you're trying to squeeze them into your sales process. And this is where I have a real issue with Mm -hmm. organizations that have implemented training or implemented a playbook and they make it dogma. They make it the script. You have to do it this way. That's not how you humanize sales. That's not how customers work. And that's not how your salespeople work. So what what do we have to do to find those leaders that are willing to allow salespeople to trust them, to manage the whole process, to give them the technology and the tech stack that they need, and to support the middle management layer who really needs the help so that they can coach those people? The question is, how do we find those leaders that are willing to do that? Yeah. How do we find those leaders? We, 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 We have to grow them. (laughs) <laughs> okay. we, have, we have to build them. It's going to be the market itself is going to like churn away what hasn't worked. You know, it's survival of the fittest, right? And so, and I have a I have a weird take on survival of the fittest. I think, uh, you know, the strongest animal in the environment is not the fittest, right? The fittest animal in the environment is the one who has most adaptive reserve. Like they're not weak. They're somewhere like, so let's call them 80% uh, to being the strongest animal in the environment. Well, what that does at 20% adaptive reserve is they can they can respond and take advantage of the changes in the environment. Obviously, very volatile environment. I'm sure we'll get into it where we're at in the space. So like those leaders that have that adaptive reserve, maybe they're beat up enough where like I've seen what doesn't work, or maybe they're just fresh and coming in with fresh eyes, um, and which I was fortunate enough to do to the space. Like you come into that and it's like, well, then I could take advantage of that. You know, new bug crawls into my environment. The strongest animal can't eat it. I can eat it. I can take advantage of that and grow, right? And so adaptive reserve. And I like this adaptive reserve idea for companies, for leaders, and then even in personal performance. I think you should have, you should maintain that. Let's then bring this into these meta skills that you're talking about. First of all, it's very interesting, but can you define what you mean by a meta skill? So again, work in progress here, but like, you know, meta skills, there's some research on meta skills. Usually it's analytics, cognitive, cognitive bias, uh, filtration, stuff like that, right? There's the, these meta skills. I'm using the term a little differently. I'm, I'm using it more as a trader attribute level. So there's two ways to view these. They're either above skills or they're beneath skills and maybe both, right? So there, there are these foundational attribute level traits that all skills are built upon. If we specialize in a skill, for example, like if there's a particular tech stack that I absolutely adore, and I use it a lot and people come to me to fix, you know, to work on it. Great. What if that happens if that tech stack leaves? Well, it's very fragile state, right? Like I don't want to be the world's best model T mechanic. There's no reason, right? And like, I don't even want to be attached necessarily to being, I'm fairly decent at HubSpot and I've been paid to set up HubSpot and I've been 
you know, I'm certified, I'm Notion certified. So I've been paid to like build templates and build out sales platforms in Notion even. But I, I don't want to be a Notion guy or a HubSpot guy. I don't want to be attached to those labels. Wonderful programs. Thank you all. But I don't want to be limited that way. And same thing for skills. Like if you look at the meta skills, at least how I've mapped out now, like they are these trade level things. We have uh, the ability to self-learn. We have the ability to persuade or influence. We have the ability to look at, I call it heuristics in my notes currently, but it's both like short-term focus and like long with short-term focus on habits, long-term focus on gain. Like, you know, so philosophy is the ultimate heuristic, I feel, because all philosophy points you to giving up something in the short term for advantage in the long term. That's every philosophy does that, right? So that's where I put heuristics in there. The ability to disrupt. So if that's about prioritization. Of course. Right. Because right. you have to have clarity on what you want, right? Or what you're okay. willing to do. And so it's it's that prioritization of I'll give up something now for something greater later, which is not human, not base level human. It's not the marshmallow the test. Yeah. Other meta skills you, you mentioned disruption. Yeah, disru disruption or creation, your ability to, to disrupt, that's your ability to innovate, your ability to uh, come up with new ideas or say things in a new way. And then, you know, presence and vitality. Uh, presence will be your, both your ability to focus on a task, your ability to do deep work, shut out what's not important, as well as just how you show up to a conversation, your deeper awareness and how the bearing that allows. Vitality is a weird one. That's usually, because usually these meta skills are kind of focused on cognition or intelligence or rationality. Vitality is a little different, but I think it's very important to develop it's your ability to like cultivate and show up with them bigger and just energy. It's your ability to to cultivate energy. Like that that starts with what we all know we should do, which is like you know sleeping, eating, and moving well, right? But that's ultimately important to show up in the tech space because a we're having so many conversations this way that I have to project my energy so that you feel me and hear me and understand. Our customers have to feel it that way, but also like. The work demands, you know, if we're going to not die from the sitting behind these screens, then we have to have energy and vitality there. Everyone's always like, well, that's weird. I know I should work out. I know I should sleep well. But if you look at all these skills, it's a giant Venn diagram, these meta skills. If you don't think like vitality fits with the rest of them, go two nights without sleep and ask me They come back and say that you can do any of these other skills well. It's absolutely essential. Our physiology drives our psychology. You know, our brain's always asking, are we safe? Because we're wired for survival, not for performance. And then this next question asks, is am I valuable? Well, you can't get to the second question if you're not safe. So if you're not taking care of your basic fundamental human movement, nutrition, and rest restoration needs, then you won't ever, you're not safe. You're under threat. And well, then, it's and then lastly, tribe, which is like a, a nuanced version of networking, would be my last skill that you have. You have to brand bigger than your role. It would be another way of saying that. All of those are phenomenal life skills and leadership skills as well. So if we're going to develop and cultivate the next generation of leaders and managers, with those meta skills, where do we start? How do we start cultivating those if we want to develop them in ourselves? What I, the advice I've been giving folks, the few that I've shared this with, is I really feel like you look at this list or make your own or you know, develop one as similar. And if your current role, you can't attach to the direct development of at least three of these meta skills, you should probably look for another role. Because I think the reason why, 
is because the jobs that we're going to have in three years don't exist yet, or the titles we have will mean a completely different job skill set then. And so worry less about like what you're technically doing. That's why self-learning is part of this. Being autodidactic is part of this is because you have to be able to learn very quickly. And of course, with AI enabled, like I'm a big fan of chat, not for in my sales process, not for like writing emails, because again, I download 11% of the internet. I don't want to repeat what has been said out there, but I do it for, I do it for role play, for research, for development, for ideation is what I use my chat sessions for, right? And my Jasper sessions. So. I love the fact that I can have someone who takes an opposing view and I can have someone who will challenge what I do and who will ensure that I've covered all the bases because you can create prompts that ensure that you cover all the bases. The beauty of this stuff is for the most disorganized bugger on the planet, me, I'm now able to create order from the chaos that's my mind. I've never been more excited. My wife Simplest, simplest prompt on the planet to improve most people's writing and production here is just go, what am I missing at the end of any prompt? And chat will kindly tell you, right? So as will Jasper. I got a bit of a telling off at the weekend because I think uh, she's become a chat GPT widow. Sorry, Suzanne. But it's really <laughs> fascinating. The potential has exploded for me. I mean, just think about how cyber terrorists or people who are just fishing uh, mm. in commercial organizations using the AI to mimic the language of the people that they're doing a fishing uh, job on. I mean, I'd be really curious to get some cyber experts on to see how um, they're seeing people use the AI because this is going to become an arms race. It's yeah. all it already is, but yeah. that's going to be really fascinating. That came from a conversation uh, this morning. So one of the big areas that we see sellers fall down on, and you've touched on it already, is that sort of, you know, if everything is a hammer, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, there is a tendency to be very blinkered. And net result of that is that you don't really help your customer. So let's start with why you should be using the technology in order to broaden your scope and to go looking for people who disagree with you. Well, I think the simplest way to use the technology is to build out those profiles so that you can check your own blind spots. Because we, how we're taught to sell, to sell in this in this space is like, okay, they, they're a socket. We have we have the plug that fits the socket, right? Okay. Yeah. That that's especially in 2023. That's such a can't tell you how many times I've been told like, yeah, you guys are the best technology. I mean, this is the best technology, but but we're not going to buy right now, yeah. right? You're not looking at the full problem. That's why I call this problem intimacy issues, right? It's like, like you have to, you have to look broader. Like you have to, what I like to say, cheeky, I guess, but like, like you should be able to go, you know, you should be able to go out with them after a hard days of work and like commiserate with them the same as they are. Like, you know, like you don't, like I think problem intimacy is far more important than personalization or relevance even because it's like, I just need to know, I need a, someone else that will suffer with me. Misery loves company, right? Yeah. I need to know that you know a thing. Another way to say it would be like, I think you should be, if you're a seller, you should be three weeks away from doing the junior level position of whatever role that you're selling into. You should know like the ins and outs. You should know like what the internal dynamics are of those, of those, of this who you're selling to. Because it's not just about the solution, like yes, solution, but if I get this, this department will actually ask for more money and they'll have to do this and it's this big headache and I'm not gonna stick my head up for that, especially in 2023. You have to know those level of problems because that's that's what you're solving. Like it's not just the technology, like- you know. To build on your point, if you do not think like that, 
and you are selling technology. The tech stack has become so complex. Banks have between 600 and 800 applications. And I, as a small business, or we as a small business, have 40, probably, that Mm. we're using in some way, shape, or form. Now, don't use all of them all of the time, but it's become really complex. So if you think about it from the C-suite level, any piece of technology that you try to sell to them is just one cog in the machine. It's a moving part. If you don't understand the interplay, upstream, downstream, parallel, you don't understand the downstream knock-on implications of the decision that they make to buy your stuff within that stack. If you don't understand the vision and what they're trying to accomplish, then chances are, if you win anything, it will be scraps. You're just going to be getting crumbs. You're not going to be getting the big deals. And more importantly, you're going to be out within a year or two because they will not see you as part of an overall strategic solution. So I think what's going to happen is a number of order-taking type sales jobs will disappear entirely. The SDR function will probably, in many cases, disappear, and it Mm. will be turned into either a marketing function or a full circle AE. And I think uh, a large proportion of direct sellers will move into the channel because the channel has typically got a bigger picture than any individual vendor. And I think maybe 20% will stay in direct sales. That, that's my take. In, in general, I agree. The only thing I would kind of add there or tack on is like, I'm pretty optimistic that SDR, BDRs, SDR, BDR managers out there don't take this as like, oh no, they're, the job's going away. I think the job's going to evolve. There will still be jobs. They're just going to be- you dead. have to adapt. Right. You have to adapt. And that's what, you know, that's why that's, this line of thinking is exactly what got me to like, contemplating these meta skills and like, how do I help these folks that are in these roles, like consciously choose what they do in the future, you know, con- quietly and consciously build, build the skills they need for jobs that don't exist yet. So given that you're going to have to, and again, if you're under 40, you're probably going to have at least another couple of careers before you retire. And if you're in your twenties, chances are you'll have somewhere between eight and 12 jobs. I think the data is saying now, in that time, you can become really proficient if only you shift your temporal focus and you stop worrying about the short term and you focus on what you're trying to accomplish in the long term. You have to look at your career as your career. Uh, and what I mean is usually people are like, I have a job, it has a function, I'm going to get really good at this job. It's like, no, your job is to build your, your attributes around a career. So this is what I'm gaining from this current role for this greater vision of myself, right? That's the focus you're talking about, I believe. It's just like, yeah, it has to tie in. It has to be, this has to move things forward. And I have to let go of things that are distractions to that path, right? It's hard because it's, it's direction over destination. Like, I can't tell you where you're going to end up, right? I'm, big, I'm not a big fan of like, you know, my X date will have Y. I'm not a big fan of that. But like directionally, I think it's correct. Like, you know, because we don't know. And so the best thing we do is like, we best we can do is head north. We don't know. We know more opportunities north. I can't tell you exactly what the what the peak when we climb that mountain up north is going to look like. Well, and Elon maybe, is probably a liar. <laughs> well, maybe another meta skill that we need to look at is situational awareness. Hmm. Discretion. Discretion, perhaps even, right? Uh, yeah, again. And discretion in all its meaning, knowing when to put the effort in, when not to. 
because that speaks to prioritization. Exactly. Um, the number of people I see, uh, me included, you know, when, when I lacked focus, I would spend days, 14, 16, 17 hour days at work and mm. have accomplished nothing. And yeah. with focus and with constraint, that's the other really important thing. I've always found constraint to be incredibly frustrating, but very useful. Right. It's, you know, constraint is, is forces creativity. That's the mother of creativity. You have to have constraint. Like if I give you a blank canvas, go paint whatever you want. Most of us will be like, uh, okay. It has to be black and white. It has to be, you know, it has to be a landscape and that you can only use these colors. You know, only is a, uh, is a creativity enhancement when you say only, right? It's not like, it's not, it doesn't make you less creative. It makes you more creative when you have constraints. Very interesting. I hadn't looked at it like that, but I shall be delving into that later. Um, okay. Tell me this then. You've managed teams. You've built very successful SDR and BDR operations. What was the best mistake you made? And what did you learn from it? You know, the best mistake I made was hiring a sales leader rather than developing a sales leader. My best hire, I had to let go, but like my best hire had everything they needed to be a great sales leader. But let me back up. I'm not still same statement, same scenario. I'm going to phrase it a different way. Hiring too many people at the same level of skill and development instead of having layers of development, folks that could take longer to progress and then having nowhere for them to progress to. And then you have this. Yeah. So that's it. So like, you know, hiring much sales leaders, you can get them to come in because of that. And then but you have nowhere for them to go is a huge mistake. Right. So you need some folks you can develop and some folks that are just right there they could you know they could take your job tomorrow if you let them you know you need both kind of and you need a spectrum of those so that's the biggest mistake i made is trying like trying to find like hey here's my top performer i'm going to replicate that top performer x times right you know at the same level and same skill set you need more diversity on a team than that and b you need some place for them to go and let's face it there's it's uh, shaped like this for a reason but there's fewer places to go right and where they go is elsewhere as they should Right. Okay, so tell me this then. I'm a first-time manager, and mm -hmm. I've just accepted my first sales management role. Yep. That 120-day onboarding, mm -hmm. what do I need to do? First thing you do is mindset shift is my take, is around it's not what I have to have them produce, it's what do I get out of their way. If you're having to have conversations around, hey, your numbers aren't good, let me give you a kick in the butt to get those numbers good, it's probably a bad hire. You could be a really great manager if you make good hires, right? That's the that's that's easy. But really, what it is is a shift in focus. Um, when I'm leading a team, I wake up every morning thinking, like, what do I need to get out of their way? I run my standups the same way. Like, I have a usually do 12 minute standups. Uh, usually, they're at a weird hour, and they're very focused. And what I do is, like, use if we have Slack or Teams, whatever the, the team's using, a, a survey will go out, and I work in focus blocks. So like, you know, what's the quality of your last focus block? that for the sake of this argument or discussion, let's just call it like, what was your outreach number, right? You know, say it's an SDR team, like how many, how many quality pieces of outreach did you get in the, since the last standup? It's always target team and time. So that'll be target. And the team thing was like, you know, what can the team get in your way? What's holding you up? And the third question will be something along the lines of when are you going to hit target this week? When do you expect to hit target this week? All the questions are lean for one thing is like, what do I need to get out of your way? I feel my personal KPI when I'm running a team is this, that 
I want my reps running 80% of the meetings. I don't mean any meeting they own 80% of it. I mean 80% of the meetings that are on the calendar, they're setting the agenda and they're coming in. Now, if they come in to me with something like, hey, uh, this didn't work, what do I need to do? And I, my first question is always, what did you try? And if they haven't tried anything, they need to go back and try something first. Go try something, then come back to me and then I'll help. But my, my job is to protect them, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times from leadership, uh, depending on the organization, and then sometimes from just themselves, right, and getting in their own way. So my goal is just simply like to clarify things, make it as simple as possible, and to let them perform. They're the talent. the most They're common blind spots that reps come into um, a new sales role with? Uh, lack of consistency. Lack of consistency by far is, I think, the biggest thing. They will push... You know, they'll push 120% if that was possible for three weeks and they burn themselves out and they, and they back off. You know, I don't, I think for the most part, jobs don't burn people out. I think people's own drive burns them out, right? And lack of clarity. If they don't know why they're doing something, they're not attached to purpose, then that burns them out as well. Because it just, then it just turns into work rather than the thing inching up the mountain towards their goal. That's the biggest blind spot is like their own regulation, their own vitality again, and then being able to regulate that. It's really important. I mean, I've been on a bit of a health kick since the beginning of the year. And the difference that eating healthily, sleeping better, taking supplements that are actually, you know, sorting my gut out. I've lost I don't know, 18 kilos, something like that since 2nd of January. It's not really been that much effort. Now I'm you know, going voluntarily out for walks. Before, it was just painful to go up the stairs. Now my wife's struggling to keep up with me, but my mind is so much clearer. I wish I'd done this years ago, but I wasn't. So obviously, I don't need to convince you on the on vitality as a meta skill, the need for that going forward. No. You mentioned one, which is anti-fragility. What, what does that mean? So anti-fragility, it's, you know, Nassim Taleb um, has a book, Anti-Fragility, who's a philosopher and economist and, and financial advisor. What it is, is the opposite of... There's no really word in the U.S. language for the opposite of fragile. Like we're talking about resilient, right? And resilient strain is a huge thing. But resilience or toughness like means that like it's armor, like either it protects you or it doesn't. But so what anti-fragility takes it one step further, it's you actually grow stronger from the chaos, right? You know, you actually grow, grow stronger from what happens. So you run to the sound of gunfire. Right. Right. And so like, you know, we're hardwired, we're hardwired for the negative reactions and to overact, but like really we need to embrace adversity to improve. So that's why I kind of pair that with the self-learning. Being autodidactic and anti-fragile are two sides of the same point where being autodidactic, I'm going out and looking what I need to learn currently to make this role, what I need to learn for the future. I'm being very proactive, right? And then anti-fragility is very responsive, not reactive, but responsive. And being responsive that way, it's like basically it means this. If I really want to sum up in like a simple phrase, like turn all things to advantage, right? That's it. And so like, you know, no matter what happens to you, then you turn to some small advantage. Now, it's not always worth the cost, but like what's the advantage that you could find there and just the ability to do that. It's a, a common way that people describe this and I like is like think about a box, right, that you're shipping, you're putting in post. You know, it says, you know, it has marked fragile, so you handle handle with care, right? And then you have one that's just a plain box, right? And, you know, so like if it does that, an anti-fragile box would say like, kick me around, drop down the stairs, deliver, right? You know, uh, deliver as rough as possible, right? Because it's going to get stronger from that. 
So yeah, the Nietzsche quote comes in here, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. That's part of it, but it's also this opportunistic nature about optionality, right? It's about what can I look at and see and take advantage of here? And it's not silver lining because I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a forced positivity guy. I'm more of a neutral thinker in that regard. So it's not about like oh look on the bright side. Just look for what's there. Like be a little more logical, a little more uh, rational, and like what can I take advantage of? And now I'm not saying that like oh I had this major health crisis, so it was all roses. Like no, I had a major health crisis that charged me to change careers. So the advantages were pretty unique. Also, I had no choice. Things became very clear when you have no choice. So there's some advantages there. What do I would I wish a kidney disease on anybody? No. <laughs> but, but am I glad I went through it? I can't say that I'm not. I can't say that I'm not. What's really interesting about this is, and it builds on your earlier point, you decide what choices you make. And so you can't say you made me feel bad without that being hypocrisy because it's a it's a choice in the same way that you said that burnout was something that people create for themselves they choose to do that by not creating boundaries and not pushing back now i get it that in that moment they may feel they have no choice but they did they chose to abdicate it that's the hard thing about this which is that we have to take more ownership. We have to take more responsibility. And the only way we can do that is if we spend more time in reflection. I don't see people having making the time to do that. So a lot of the stuff that you were talking about, I imagine there's pushback and saying, well, where am I going to find time? Yeah, it's so funny about the time thing. You can't manage time, right? You can manage effort and focus. There's yeah. no such thing as time management. Like it just, it just keeps ticking. My pushback is like, when do you find time? It's like, well, it comes back to your question around clarity. And this is you know, I'm not the one to originate this thought, I'm sure, or, or any thought, but it's, it, then where are your priorities? If this isn't important to you, or it's important, then where are your priorities lie? It's a prioritization question, not like fitting more in. It's, you got to clear the clutter, or you got to clear the clutter, you know, like, yeah, you have to sacrifice some stuff. Everything's a trade-off. So you're going to sacrifice some things, you know, short-term gain, not to give up the streaming services, you might have to like, you know, and not eat the the cakes or the brownies or the cookies you like, like whatever those things are. There's all this stuff that you, yeah, it's no one said it's going to be easy, but we're never going to be exonerated from our suffering, right? Like it's like it's not going to get better. Like you, like it doesn't get better. You just get more impactful. You just get more impactful. You get more valuable. Fascinating. Okay, so back to the management philosophy. I'm really <laughs> curious. When did you realize that you had to humanize your management? Because I'm guessing at the start, there was probably a fair bit of hammer and nail. I didn't know. I, uh, you know, again, coming late into the space and my background that I had before, you know, being a trainer and coach and and running small family businesses for my whole life. The I didn't know people didn't do this. And it's particularly naive. I'll be vulnerable here. Like I was particularly naive. And it was like, it, that really came to a point how different it was, perhaps the thinking just earlier this year, when I lost uh, the team I was running, and we were shifted, we shifted around, I became an IC and did some market research. And my team was taking over, and like the incoming manager was, was like, basically, like, how do you make them do what you want? What I want them to do, and I like I didn't know how to answer that question. I felt like embarrassed. I was like, I don't know, I don't know how to. Can you rephrase? I don't even know. This is not English. <laughs> I what you're saying. I don't make them do anything. I wake up and think about what's in their way, and I get it out of their damn way. Right. 
So I, I treated everyone as a coaching client, I suppose. And I didn't even mean to or know to. So I'll say I was incredibly naive. And uh, it was just recently I discovered that not everybody was doing this. So presumably that's been greeted with a certain amount of surprise and maybe pushback or skepticism. Talk to me about those conversations. I'm really curious how you handled them. Yeah, I, I just I just pointed the numbers. Like, <laughs> like my teams perform well. I have, you know, tiny teams that have outsized outcomes. So my God, just point like, yeah, like, let's look at the numbers. I mean, like, what do you want to see different? So like, that's my usual, my answer there when I get that. It's like, like a little cheeky again, but I mean, that's, that's the truth. It's like, you know, like, well, I'm, my teams run well and, and small. And I, I embrace that. Like, you know, I'd rather have a few folks that are well enabled and ever since that word to flourish, to bring their best self forward. And I want to create those environments. And that usually means smaller teams with like more, maybe perhaps more tech spend. I'm more process heavy than I am tech spend. I don't buy tech to buy tech, but I want them to have every tool necessary to be, you know, proficient and uh, efficient. Oh, from, from that angle, it's that. But like, so what happens is that the ROI kind of proves it out. So I've had too many of those weird conversations. Like people either get it or they don't, but like I just point at the numbers and like, and you know, that's it. So what happens to the people on the teams once you've gone? And someone comes in with a more traditional management style. So far, what's happened is uh, I usually have some really good recruits for my next role. Is usually what happens. <laughs> but, uh, but no, that's it. It depends. It depends on the situation. Uh, it's run the gambit. Uh, some folks have, you know, it, it certainly shakes things up. You know, and I'm I'm far from the best sales leader. You know, and I, I admit that openly. And so. But I haven't seen a case yet, and this will sound incredibly difficult, but I haven't seen a case yet where numbers or performance actually improved. So um, from when I left. All right. Okay. Ah. Yeah. So I, I, individuals have thrived uh, that were under, uh, that reported to me, and they've okay. thrived in different situations for sure, you know, hands down. But I haven't seen where, as an organization, things have improved. You and I both share a philosophy, which is that we should be creating the next generation of leaders. So let's work on that manifesto. Let's think about what matters uh, in terms of the future leaders within the sales profession. What are the values that really underpin it? Can I back up and add like a a, a philosophical line here too? Of course. I, I need to stay in the bounds of is we... I would prefer to assume that uh, a sales leader is not attached to a certain title. I think he could be a green SDR and be a sales leader. Excellent. And I think that's, so I think having that in mind, it has nothing to do with title. It has something to do with ownership and responsibility and what you're speaking to earlier about taking that. The autonomy is earned through responsibility, right? And so gaining, you can do that as the greatest, newest SDR on the planet and be a sales leader. By the way that you show up, your consistency, your capability, your uh, drive, your initiative, and your ability to learn. Basically the meta skills, right? You know, by embracing those, you can be a leader in that space, even if you don't have the title. And as a salesperson, you need to be a leader for your customers. They don't come to us for features and functions. They come to us for leadership and a safe pair of hands to guide them through a difficult decision, which right. may be career stopping or career enhancing. Right. You, you need to look for the folks 
and then you can either get them a promotion or keep them from getting fired. That's who you should be talking to, right? You know, with most solutions. Likewise, those folks that have, let me phrase this. The other way to look at this too would be like, you have to, you have to curate the information. Like there's, there's, there's so much information. We know the, we know the buyer seller dynamic has shifted since the internet's existed, right? And it's shifted again, where it's not, a, now we have too much information. A buyer has too much information. So you, we have to be a trusted curator, as Daniel Pink says, right? We get to like, get like cut out the noise and go, this is why you should do this. These are the facts you should pay attention to, ignore the rest. And, and do that ethically and honestly, of course. But like, this is why it matters. This is why, this is why I help my other customers. This is what it looks like. That's what they need. Because they, they, they're threatened, like uh, overwhelm of inputs. Like they don't know what to do, right? And so that's your role is to navigate them to a point where like, hey, here's a conduit to get you where you need to be. I know there's a lot of noise. These are the three things you should pay attention to. Yeah, it's that simplicity of like curation. It's not, that's how you guide them. It's not like going, giving, it's not giving them information. Anybody can Google like, how do I do X or Y? What do I need, right? And they'll get all they want. But no, it's, it's like knowing what to pay attention to. And that that's something that only in the most functionary task could like AI currently do. Because it's experience and problem intimacy that help you answer that question for them. If you're ethical, you, you can you can be a sleazy sales guy and be unethical and, and get it done too, I'm sure. But like, but really, let's not go there. So how do you coach that into someone who doesn't have the experience? Because it sounds like you've been able to do that. And I'm really curious yeah, what that journey looks like. It, it starts with like, why are you doing this? It starts with that clarity of like, why would you do this? And for the majority of folks I that I brought into the tech sales space, it was, you know, in, in the US, average SDR base pay is like, you know, I think it's 47 now base and like, you know, 80 OT, something like that. And the majority of folks I brought into the tech space never made more than 30K a year before. And so that's life-changing. That's like, that's, if, if we get somebody to make that's never made more than 30K to double that, that's life-changing for them and their families. Yeah. Far more than if you or I would make another 30K a year. Life, lifestyle wouldn't even change. Not that like either of us are wealthy. I don't think from that regard, you may be, I don't know, but the, no. like, but it wouldn't change my lifestyle. I yeah, please have it. I want more, but like not, I wouldn't change who I am for it. It might be a new bathroom or a holiday. Exactly. Right. And so like the, the lifestyle and values would not change, but like you do that for someone who's coming into the industry, then that's a completely different thing. So like that clarity, that's obviously an easy point of clarity to tie into like they're doing it to provide for their families typically. So you tie everything to that goal. So this is what you have to do to improve that. And then from that point of clarity, then it becomes very easy to create these leaders because you're like, Hey, you're, you're your own book. This that's also what I do for my sales folks too. And I'll think about it is why I get things out of their way is I want them to own their time. Like when I put a meeting on their calendar, I want them to have like a healthy disdain for it. Why are you putting a meeting on my calendar? Like uh, I want them to own their time. I want them to own their book of business. I want them to be entrepreneurs. And so I build that. Like you're building a career. You're coming in as a young salesperson. You're building a career. Here's what you need to do. This is how you do it. You know, and you look at it as a stepwise advantage. And but it comes back to that authority, that autonomy, and the ability to have the initiative to learn, develop, and grow. And you can't have that with that clarity, because if not, you're just like, I just want to be the best here because I want to make the biggest number here and everybody else. Like, yeah, do that. That's fine. That's a nice little short-term boost, but that's not a good heuristic for a long-term gain. 
So that clarity gives you that long-term vision. One of the things that is always a frustration for me is when I see in job adverts must be able to motivate a team, blah, blah, blah. When motivation is an internal force in the same way that you cannot manage time, you cannot motivate another human being to do anything ever. Yeah, you've already said it. You can't. I mean, like you said it earlier, like it's the same thing as um, when you're speaking about like what we can control and not like how we view things, right? Like, you know, that kind of like the, what the Stoics would call a dichotomy of control. There's some things you control, there's some things you cannot. Like when you go to that aspect, you can't, I can't internally motivate anybody. I can get shit out of their way. So like they have less resistance to find their motivation, but it still has to start with that central drive that's attached to clarity. Drive comes naturally if you know what where you're going. No one has the destination, but at least the direction. That drive will come naturally and internally. Yeah, you need to be internally, internally motivated, externally focused. Well, again, this is really interesting because often, or more often than not, I see so many decisions coming down from leadership and from management and uh, the metrics, the way people are compensated, the kind of people that they hire onto teams that create the conditions where the brain goes into a stress response and therefore switches off the power of language, switches off the power of reason and thought and the use of logic. Mm -hmm. What do we have to do to get the people with the money to allow managers to spend time leading, coaching, planning, instead of having them being spreadsheet jockeys and bullying people into pressuring their customers to make premature decisions which end up going nowhere? Well, I don't know if we have to force it. I think the current natural environment may allow some of those openings. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's all, you know, I mean, the long term, it's long term taking these junior folks and, and raising them up into those positions, right? But so many of them don't really have a mentor or a leader that they can look to because their managers were promoted for the wrong reasons. They were promoted for being a good individual contributor, mm-hmm. not for their management capability. So they're not going to get it from there. Is, is it through community, through tribe? I think so. I think you, you know, there's so many wonderful groups that you can join and build that. And like, I actively encourage folks to like to build your tribe. Like, you know, I have, I have meetings. I know you do as well, where you, you build that. So you're like your peers or your, your work peers or your work peers, but like that tribe is what you need, right? Um, that tribe, that, that fraternal, you know, brother or sisterhood, um, you know, sort of kind of nature is like, is central, like it's human, right? You know, we, it, you know, find those 150 people that like you want to interact with, right? You know, or less, right? I like 47 because I'm, I'm on this Ronin kick at the moment, but like 47 Ronin. But I uh, like find those folks. And then those are your peers. Those are your, those are the, the folks that will give you either the, the kick in the ass or the pat on the back as you need it, right? And I think that's where you learn because each of those folks that you choose, these aren't folks chosen for you by your, by the job you took. These are the folks that you choose that may be a little further ahead on the journey or just offer a different perspective on your journey. I think that's where you could you could build and, you know, create an intro network, if you will, that will eventually move forward. Will it move forward in time? I don't know. You've touched on something as well, which I think is really, really important, which is having diverse groups of people uh, working on teams. And you mentioned it earlier on. 
Talk to me about why diversity, uh, what, what good diversity looks like and why it's so essential. Well, I'll start the second part first. It's like, you know, our is shown um, our mesolimbic system. So basically, like, it's a shortcut from the, our prefrontal cortex to our hindbrain, our primitive brain. The mesolimbic system actually improves in diverse situations. When you have to have conversations with folks that are socially diverse from you, that are different backgrounds than you, that it actually improves. So what's interesting about that is like having a diverse network will make you uh, better at every social engagement, not just ones with more diverse groups, but even in your own like network, you actually get improved the social situation. So like from a very self-interested standpoint, having a diverse team or a diverse network makes you better at everything social, everything influential and persuasive. So that's one very biological, physical, neuro, neurobiological reason to have a diverse network. For a at a team level, why it's important to have diversity is because I want people speaking authentically. I don't want to create covered copies because people smell that as salesy. That's like what does sales smell like? Is someone being inauthentic? Mm -hmm. Period. Right. And so, if you have a diverse network, it means that you could reach more diverse audience, more diverse customers. Right. Even though they have the same problem, again, it goes back to problem uh, intimacy. Right. It's like if that's beyond personalization, that's beyond relevance. That's into something else that I can't speak to because of being a white Caucasian male in their 40s. Right. You know, like that's different than than if someone with different demographics. So it's like so. No, you want both. Like the A, you can, you can reach more people and B, you, everyone gets better. So you want a tight tribe and a diverse network is frequently what I say. Right. Or diverse team and in, in, in Thai tribe. Well, what what I find really interesting about the tribe is that they're high challenge, high support. We share some value or purpose, and when you need help, it's there in the blink of an eye. I mean, you can post a question twenty minutes later. There's a dozen funny responses, half a dozen really excellent ones, one or two that maybe you're going to think about for uh, the right or the wrong reasons. But people are willing to help, and we need that. Why do you think that's so valuable, though, Marcus? Because we're social primates, partially, and also because we need to have other perspectives. If you're living in an echo chamber, then you're never going to be able to be the best that you can be. I think our responsibility as sellers is to, and I'm with you on the autodidactic side of things, because I think every seller should be constantly, avariciously learning. And we have no excuse nowadays to not do our research, not do our uh, rehearsal, uh, not do our planning, and um, be able to do so much more. I put money on it that your uh, SDRs were not speaking to um, three people for one minute a day. No. no. Right. My last BDR team, we didn't even cold call. And to, for them to hit target, they needed to have 53 pieces of quality engagement a week. What do you mean by quality engagement? Define that. Uh, highly relevant, highly personalized, highly problem intimate uh, outreach. Reaching to that person on the communication style and method that they want to be spoken to. Very nice. Because that's personalization, not this shit, dear first name. Hey, you're bald, Marcus. I'm bald. We should be best friends and you should buy everything I have. <laughs> well, now that you put it like that, I'm, um, here's my credit card. Uh, <laughs> Dustin, like, it's been a joy. Sorry, go on. No, I just, you know, I just want to follow up. You asked the question and I pushed it back on you on um, on why is it important to have the tribe. I, I think I'm going to push back a little bit here too. And I, th I think you hit on it, but 
I would phrase it this way, is having a tribe gets, allows you to remind you who you are and who you want to be. Because when you go to a tribe, you're choosing the group that you want to be a part of. And, you know, for the some of the people we hang out around with, I always want to lower the average. So there's something in that tribe that is that I want or want to be a part of. And so even the detractors, even when they push back on you, they're allowed, they're they're cutting away what's not you. Mm. Those that pat you on the back are building you up in a form that you want to be. So that it gives you a place to consciously go and be reminded of who you want to be and then what you need to fill that gap. So I think that's really the value of tribe is like, because you're creating your future self when you have a tribe. Excellent. Well, that's a fantastic note to finish on. Dustin, what would you recommend people read, watch, listen to, especially mm. around the meta skills areas? I would start with anti-fragility. I would start with essentialism. And then, you know, if you want to have more discussion, I have a LinkedIn article series that's going around meta skills right now. I would love to have uh, comments and hostile remarks discussion around those as well. And so. send it to me. I'll add it to the listener notes so that anyone can come into that as well. Yeah. But I think essentialism and anti-fragility, those are that in the war of art. Those are my three post-Gutenberg book recommendations, right? Excellent. Well, the war on art, mm -hmm. the war of art. War of art by Stephen Prestel. Not the war of art, not the art of war, but the war of art, right? The war so, of art. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sorry, what were the other two again? Essentialism by Greg McEwen and Greg Adra, McEwen, fantastic. And Adra, yeah, and Adra Fragility by Nassim Taleb. Ah, oh, yeah. Okay. Wonderful. How can people get hold of you? LinkedIn is usually the best. Um, I'm fairly active there. So just uh, ping me on LinkedIn or uh, Dustin at nowgrow.io. And are you hiring? Not currently. Is there anything that I should have asked that I didn't? Probably go on for a few more hours, waxing feels like. <laughs> as always but we'll do that another time so no Excellent. i yeah okay well uh, dustin ripto thank you very much as ever yeah absolutely marcus thank you my friend much appreciated so this is marcus kauke signing off once again from the inquisitor podcast if you found this useful and insightful and i'd be amazed if you haven't then please go back take notes tag someone like comment share and please leave an honest review on whichever podcast uh, channel you use if you want to talk to me about coaching, there's a link in the show notes. And if you're interested in learning about AI and how to use it as a seller, definitely get in touch with Dustin because he's got some amazing thoughts. Moeed Amin and myself are running a program called ChatGPT for Sellers. And if you want to find details on that, then that'll be in the show notes too. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.